welcome to Voices of Experience, your audio and video access to interviews, insights, and information that will help you speak more and speak better. Voices of Experience is brought to you by the National Speakers Association. Now, here are your hosts, Stephen Iverson, CSP, and Pilar Ortiz. Welcome to your May 2016 edition of Voices of of experience. We have key guests and conversations with successful speakers that will share their knowledge, effective tips, and techniques. And to complement this month's Speaker Magazine Focus on Humor, we've included a few humorous perspectives for you to consider. You will also find available on the VOE app two videos. The first is our visit with President Ruby Newell-Legner, where she kind of takes over and shows her funny side. And don't miss the VOE video where we come to you street side. Click on the video icon to view those bonus videos. Well, let's get to it. Brian Walther, CSP, CPAE. We understand that as speakers that if we, if we really want to engage the audience and build a business that's going to be profitable, we've got to have some fun or some, more importantly, funny in our presentation. But not everybody is. Help us, please. Sure. Well, the main thing is, is to again go back to why, why. And there's that famous NSA phrase, which is, you don't have to be funny unless you want to get paid. paid. That's right. And all of us <laughs> want to get paid because otherwise... We're just giving like free sermons and we don't want that. So the audience wants humor. That does not mean jokes. They want humor and they want humor that's relevant to them. Uh, a lot of times the client will say something, well, you know, you're not going to be, and they use this horrible word, hokey, are you? And hokey is like death. It's like, no. So the phrase is, or the, the response is, all the humor that I do will have a purpose. It will advance the message. So because humor reveals truth, because what humor is, is really saying, here's the way things are supposed to be. Here's how they really are. And it's that contrast between the two, which is what is funny. So you can learn and go to classes and workshops and things and, and learn how to be funnier, even if you're not that funny now. But an easier way to do it is to use a humorous format. Now, format is a structure. It's a process. It oftentimes has visuals, and it takes you from A, B, C, takes you through it, and so you let the format help you be funny. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share three different formats that you can use that will help you be funny. Well, the first one, the easiest one, is the old game that we played when we were kids, Two Truths and a Lie. Two Truths and a Lie is here are three factoids Two of them are true, one is not, and you as the audience member have to guess which one is made up. So imagine you're doing a sales conference. You're doing a sales conference, and you talked to them, and you find out, okay, what's going on here? Well, they're rolling out the new comp plan, the new incentive plan. Oh, is it going to make it easier for the salespeople to earn their bonus? No, no, it's going to make it harder. So it's like, <laughs> okay, and so, and you speak, well, you know, I noticed that, uh, you know, today you're rolling out the comp plan here, and so... Uh, we thought we'd uh, explore that a little bit. We're going to play uh, sales comp, true truths, and a lie. 
Now, just right there, people start tittering. <laughs> oh my gosh, something's going to happen here. Well, I'm going to share three factoids. Two of them are true, one of which is false about your comp plan. And when cued, you must shout out which one you think is the lie. They're already laughing now. This is not hysterically funny, but you're creating a funny scenario because they say, we're going to actually tell some truth here. So it could be. So with the new rollout plan, uh, it's going to be easier for you to earn your bonus. It's going to be a lot harder to earn your bonus or see, you don't have a chance, you know, and then it would be laughter. Again, this isn't hilarious, but because it's customized about them, they're being, oh, see, 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 oh. <laughs> and then they're laughing at themselves. So there, with two truths and a lie, there are three things. The reason that there are three is in, in comedy, there's what's called the rule of three. The third thing is funny, you know, you know, apples, bananas, aardvark, brunch. Okay, it's the third thing that is what makes something, you know, funny. And so with two truths and a lie, you have truth, truth, smart aleck response. And I didn't really mean aleck, but, you know, you know. It's like, okay. So that's something you can do. You can just right. put text on screen. You can put text on screen or you can put visuals that correspond to that. But again, do you see how the structure is being funny? Well, it's like, I don't know how to, to deliver a joke. This isn't a joke. It's like, I don't know how to phrase things in a funny way. You don't have to. Can you read Okay, you read off of the slides and you let the structure do the humor for you. And it's always important to have that lie as the third one. Don't mix it up. Don't put it at the front or in the middle. For most of it. Let's say we're doing three of them, you know. Bing, bing, bong. Bing, bing, bong. Bong, bong, bong. It's like, what? Well, surprise the factor. Surprise that it comes in. So, again, having something be different from what you expected is funny. So that's one format. Uh, another great uh, format that I've started using in recent years is the executive celebrity lookalike. There was an app. It's not even out anymore called My Celeb. And what it was is you would take your phone and you would take a picture of yourself or your friend and it would put it through this little program and it would say, it's like, okay, you know, Steven looks exactly like George Clooney. Now that's funny right there. But, <laughs> uh, but, uh, I was holding my laugh. So, Blair, I, I'm surprised you're laughing so hard at that because I think it's true. But Marlon Brando, right? Marlon Brando. It's like, okay. In the Godfather. Yes, in, in the, the Godfather. Godfather. Okay. In the Godfather. Okay. Um, so, so, there's an app and people are used to doing funny apps. And so it, to say you look like this celebrity is funny. So now we're applying this to executives. And so usually the setup that I do, which you could do, and I would say, hey, have you ever heard of the app My Celeb? And it's like an app where you take the phone. People actually start downloading it, you know, in the audience as you do that. <laughs> um, there's several of them like this, but I use the my celeb even though they don't make it anymore. I go, you know, my my celeb, and you take your picture, and it shows you your celebrity match. What I didn't realize here at, let's say you're doing it for Verizon, is that there's my Verizon celeb. Now there isn't really, but the audience is like, hoo, hoo, hoo. it's like. So what I did is I took your senior management team and I put them through this app, would you like to see the results? Absolutely. And of course, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're already laughing, and you haven't done anything funny yet. Because again, the structure is doing it for you. So here is a picture of a, uh, you know, and here's, you know, Bob Johnson, the senior vice president of sales for, you know, the, this mobile carrier, and it looks exactly like Justin Bieber. That's <laughs> funny. Or, you know, here's, uh, you know, uh, Catherine Johnson, and she looks exactly like uh, Lindsay Lohan's mugshot, but I'm bum bum. And so again, you're putting funny things. Now, usually what I do is I do two. 
I say, and you find something they look very much alike. And all you have to do is get their eyes and nose and hair similar. That's it. That's all you have to do. And people, oh, that's amazing. You get that, ah, oh, and then I show a funnier one. Like, again, there was one executive who had prominent teeth. And so looks like this actor and Bugs Bunny. You know, but mm-hmm. Now, if you're doing this, a safety tip. For men, men, the harder you tease them, the funnier it is. Women, I will always make it a flattering thing because they will come after you. They will come after you <laughs> and you will they pay. Don't like it. It's like, so yeah, I do the Lindsay Lohan mugshot, but after I've put an incredible, you know, thing that you, here you look exactly like George Clooney's new wife and Lindsay Lohan's thing. It's, it's like, it's just, it's just a thing. It, it always worked. That formula always works. And the more senior the executive, the more they like it. It's like, he looks exactly like Boris Yeltsin. You know, that's funny. So BC, the structure is doing it for you. You're not actually having to do it yourself. But being safe is very important. I was going to ask. Being is safe. it risky? Because if you are not really funny, it's, it's, it's risky. But the format reduces risk. Because, it, again, it's like you're not saying, hey, we're about to do this really funny thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. They don't laugh. And no. it's like you're saying, hey, we're going to do this two truths and a lie. You never tell them it's funny. funny. It becomes funny. You don't say, hey, here's this really format matching celebrity thing I'm going to do. You're going to love it. In fact, you're going to think I'm so funny. Oh, my gosh, you're going to want to hire me back just because of this. I mean, because what you're doing is you're when you do that, you set up high expectations. You actually don't set any expectations. And it's funnier than they were expecting. And that little laugh is fine. And do you ever warn those executives that you're going to do this? Or is it just as a surprise to them as everybody else in the audience? Uh, Clients and senior execs hate surprises. So what you do is you make sure your client contact, you do this ahead of time, you show it to them, and you show it to the most senior person. So if it's like, there's, let's say there's an executive committee, I always ask for this meeting, what is the line level of management above them? If it's a meeting, they might say, okay, it's the regional manager group. How many of them? There's six of them. Okay, we're going to do the regional management group, and who's the highest ranking person here? And the president. Okay, so I'm going to do the six regional vice presidents, and I'm going to do the ex- executive. You don't want to use people that they don't know or don't care about. I once had a client, and they insisted, oh, you know, we have to also use the senior VP of HR and the senior VP of IT and our legal counsel. <laughs> do, I said, do the people in the audience, have? And do they know who they are? Have they ever seen them? No. I said, they don't care. Hmm. You have to use people that they care about or they know and they don't like. Either way. <laughs> Either way, it works. Like, but they have to have, an, they have, to have they a have feeling to towards them. So what I do is I make sure that my client sees the, the pictures all ahead of time. And we make sure that the senior person, the most senior person sees it. And they go, oh, that's really funny. It's like, and we say, okay, we're not going to show the others. No, that's great. I don't want them to. Because as long as your client is happy with it and the senior person is happy with it, no one else's opinion matters. And... Now, here's the, the funny thing. Here's the weird thing with this format. They will go to the person that you spoofed, and they will congratulate them. That was so funny, that thing with you and Boris Yeltsin. They didn't do anything. You did it. But they will get the compliment. Is there another thing we can do, another format that will help us to be funny? Ab- absolutely. <laughs> it's just that I've forgotten what it is. But I have to think of it. So if you give me a second here as we do an edit, I'm trying to, what was the third one? That's like no, that's funny. Do. We are going to leave that. Okay, here we go. It's a top five list. Okay. All right. So the third format is a top five list. Not a top ten list, 
the top five list. Now, we've, thanks to David Letterman, uh, everyone in North America is trained on, oh, a top 10 list. A top five list is, matches the shorter audience attention span sensibility. That's what you're going for, a top five list. Now, again, this is the one that requires a little bit of humor. But you've got to, you have got to say, okay, what are five things that are true? So you get five things that are true. It could be about your topic. It could be about the company. It could be about the client, about the attendees. Five things are true. For example, um, let's say you're doing a, a speech to a call center, okay? Wait times on hold times is a reality. Average call length is a reality. How uncomfortable their headsets are is a reality. It's like the irritating uh, lights that notify them if they've been talking too long with a customer is a reality. It's like the fact that their bathroom is located down two flights of stairs and they have to hurry is a reality. So again, during interviews, you find out what these realities are. Now, none of those are inherently funny, or it could be the you know the top five traits of those who are successful at working, blah, 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 blah. One is, you know, it's like, uh, you know, number four, an incredibly strong bladder, unless you can run two flights of stairs. <laughs> Boom. It's like, okay. Uh, you know, number three, tiny ears that you don't mind getting squashed flat with your XYZ headphones, you know. Uh, be, being colorblind so you can ignore the flashing red light when it happens to you because it looks kind of brown. Yeah. I mean, so you, you take these realities and you just make them slightly humorous. And the order is the second most funny one goes first. And the funniest one is the last one. That's the formula. Again, let the structure make you funny. Have you ever thought about bringing your children or your grandchildren to the NSA Youth Program? It's an opportunity of a lifetime, for sure. You know how important it is to develop skills, relationships, and leadership. And being exposed at a young age builds a strong foundation. We're talking with the future of NSA, youth program leader, Ellie Waring-Stevens. Hello, Ellie. Nice to have you here. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Ellie is an 18-year-old, and she came uh, for the youth program when she was 11. That is amazing, Stephen, because we know how important it is for kids to get to know NSA and feel the experience of NSA as a, at a young age. Yes. But why did you come in 11? Who, who dragged you to this youth event? <laughs> it was my dad at the time. Oh. Um, I didn't really understand what the youth program was in the beginning. I just knew it was sort of the club for kids. It was in my idea. So um, at the beginning, I was really, really nervous, didn't know what to expect. Coming as a Brit from, you know, into an American convention is a lot more intimidating than I imagined. <laughs> so I was extremely nervous in the beginning, but almost instantly, as soon as I met, you know, the group that I was going to be with, it was like I was instantly family and just felt completely comfortable. What was that that was special? Because you started meeting new people, new friends, but you were nervous and probably boring. Like, what am I going to do there? That <laughs> really, what was that one thing, two things or one phrase that you heard that made a difference? I think, uh, especially that convention, it's especially 11. It's really an awkward age of like finding yourself. And there was a lot of messages at that convention about 
being yourself and being comfortable and having the people around me that I did made it really easy to be that way and to take that lesson home and, you know, use it in my own life. And then you became a leader because yes. you have been as a, a participant, but now she's one of the leaders in the convention. Yes. Tell us about that experience. What do you do? How is it now that you are on the other side? Right. So um, basically the job of the leaders is to look after and take care of a certain age group of kids. So we have it split up with 10 to 12s, 13s, 14s, and 15s, 16s. And the way we organize it in the beginning is first years are never in charge of 15s, 16s, because that would be very confusing because <laughs> you've just left the youth program. You can't really control your friends, basically. Right. <laughs> so um, they put you in 10 to 12s and 13, 14s, so it's an easier transition. And basically our job is to make sure the youth have as enjoyable a time as possible, make them feel as comfortable as possible, especially with the younger kids. It's really important to make them, any nerves go away and make sure that they're just comfortable and enjoying themselves at all times, really. Very good. If you could sit across the table from a parent who is an NSA member who just keeps thinking that maybe the youth program isn't important They're, and they're not going to bring their kids. Mm. What would you tell them to convince them that they should invest in that? I would tell them it's such a great opportunity for learning, for new experiences, meeting new people. It's great for kids, especially who are maybe a little shy and just need to come out of their shell a little bit. I definitely know that when I was a youth, just coming to the convention and being exposed to new people made my confidence grow. And they're also exposed to great speakers, um, teaching great lessons about like self-acceptance, surrounding yourself with good people, um, and then learning how to pursue your dreams. And yeah, I just, I can't express enough <laughs> what a great idea it is. Bring your kids, it's such a great experience. And it's beautiful to see your face. And I know we cannot see you in the <laughs> recording, but your voice says it all. Mm -hmm. And you are planning on staying involved with NSA? Yeah, definitely. I mean. I can't really leave the friends that I have, <laughs> the great friends that I have, because I only really get to see them once a year. And it's just been such a great learning experience that I couldn't imagine not coming to NSA. It's really just the highlight of my year. Steven, and this is the new generation. This is what it's all about, to That's tell right. others what is NSA and what we can mm -hmm. find here. That's right. And Ellie is going on into college, to university, <laughs> and what do you plan to do? I plan to study film. I'm unsure whether I'm going to go into production or theory yet, but I've chosen a course that does a bit of both. So we'll see what's in store. Very good. We, so we should do the there. best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking and production. And mm -hmm. You've grown up in the family, not just your own family, but the family of NSA. Definitely. Thank you for joining Thank us. You so Thank you. Thank you. And we will be seeing you for years to come. <laughs> today with Robert Siciliano, CSP, personal security and identity theft expert. Thank you for being here at BOE. Yeah, it's an absolute honor to be here. And you have a very special business model that we would like to explore today. Okay. Especially the part of your model that has uh, sponsorship. All right. You know, we usually look at sponsorship in one way about how do we get a sponsor to help with an event or uh, maybe a tour of some kind, but you've leveraged sponsorship in a much different way. So help us understand how you've done it. Well, years and years ago, I attended a presentation that Tom Weninger delivered, and it talked about um, becoming a celebrity speaker. 
right? And uh, him and others, you know, talked about getting involved with the media as much as possible to help build your brand, become a celebrity speaker. And uh, I kind of took that and ran with it to build my brand. I never actually became a celebrity speaker, but um, I have kind of managed to work myself in as a, um, as a somewhat of a thought leader and an expert in my field of expertise. And that has led to a lot of media over the years to build my own brand. And now what uh, happens is uh, companies that have products and services that align with my brand, security, uh, they um, want to uh, bring me on as their spokesperson, both in television, radio, in print, and that could involve, you know, uh, getting calls by journalists, it could involve getting calls by uh, television producers, it involves my blog. In some way, shape or form, their brand, product or service is mentioned in that spot. Are these long-term relationships? Long-term relationships are a big deal for me. When I uh, produce content for a client, it's digital and it's forever. So when I get on the phone with the client at the very beginning, uh, usually it's because they've been in a certain amount in a certain way stalking me for some time like they know who I am and that's often because I've mentioned their brand in the past right so I kind of weave their brand if I want to I want to work with them so before uh, you work with them you do that do I often mention? yeah yeah I mention their brands because it they're always googling themselves they're always clipping their press and so you mention their brand then they're like oh so who's talking about us now and then they see who I am and like oh this guy seems like he has something going on and so once they connect with me whether it's via Twitter Facebook LinkedIn email phone then my first my conversation with them is listen if I'm gonna be producing content with you if you're gonna be aligning your brand with my brand I want this to be forever because that content is going to be forever. I believe in long-term relationships. So you need to look at this as this is forever. It's forever for me. It's forever for you. And uh, I'm not interested in courting. I'm not interested in one-night stands. This is a forever thing from, from the very beginning. That I will always be here for you and I will always tell your brand in the best possible light uh, that I can do. And my clients stay with me. You know, they generally don't let me go. And some of them are major uh, marquee brands and others are startups that I've helped make uh, millions of dollars on an annual basis. But this is not an automatic pilot. You have to work it 24-7 every time. A lot of uh, speakers that are very successful in, the, in this industry talk about processes and systems they have in place and that they're selling processes. Uh, and I have processes and systems that I don't necessarily sell to clients, but I have internally that keep the motor running. And uh, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, you when you plant the lawn, you got to till the soil, you got to plant the seed, you got to water the grass, you got to fertilize it. And that process never stops if you want a green, lush lawn. And so I am constantly working processes and updating, upgrading these processes to to go with the times, to go with the clients. Uh, as new technologies come on, I see if they work. As old technologies drop off, I drop them off and so forth. And so, uh, you know, whether it's branding or marketing, selling, there's always something going on to keep that brand in the limelight, to keep my contractors, my vendors supplied with uh, work that they can do to help uh, keep that motor running, to keep that lawn fed. So it sounds like you are really working hard on the being the thought leader in this particular area and sponsors who are not yet sponsors are beginning to notice the value you're bringing to the conversation and they see how their brand can align with yours. It's almost as if they're, they're coming to you more than it is you going to them. Yeah. You know, when you see, uh, 
uh, it's, it's just an example. When you see Justin Bieber doing Calvin Klein commercials, obviously Justin Bieber's brand will sell Calvin Klein jeans. It's, it's, it, it is that. I am no Justin Bieber. Uh, <laughs> but my clients have Calvin Klein, you know, stuck. I mean, like they are top 100 marquee brands. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking for their LeBron James. They're looking for their Justin Bieber. And uh, they're looking for somebody to represent them in a positive light. You know, I uh, am a, a notable, credible expert in my field. And if you Google personal security expert or identity theft expert, I come up in the top page of search multiple times. And if you do the same thing in Google News, I often am in the first two and three pages of search uh, because, you know, I'm constantly in the media and uh, that helps bring eyeballs to my, my clients' products and services. What kinds of things are sponsors looking for, for a good spokesperson? Well, they wanna, they're looking at um, you and your website and how good it is or bad it is. They're looking at um, your uh, social presence. They're looking at your Twitter feed, uh, how active it is, how many followers you have. They're looking at your cloud score. That's a big deal. Uh, they're looking at um, your Facebook feed. And they're also looking at you know, not just um, uh, how how much how many blogs you're doing, the co the quality of your writing, uh, how much media you're doing, how much television you're doing. They're looking at you know specifically what you're saying and how you're saying it, and if it if it if it aligns with their morals and values, and if everything you're doing and the pictures you're posting and the things you're saying are all like politically correct and okay. You know, there's a lot of things that I like to say that I don't because I can't. I'm under the microscope all day, every day. And, you know, there's certain things that I might say or do around, you know, close family and friends that I would never allow to be digitized in any way, shape, or form, you know? But that's just the reality of it. And But most people don't see that stuff, and they're just saying anything and everything. And if I was a marquee brand, I would never work with them because they've just poisoned themselves and their brand over and over and over again. Online reputation management is huge for speakers, uh, especially if in any way, shape, or form, you're working with companies that are marquee brands. And since you are the security expert, identity theft expert, could you give us some advice? Because we as speakers are always on the road, have telephones, we are using laptops and banking there. And I know you do home devices, data, person. Two or three tips important for speakers that we should be paying attention to. Real simple stuff, road warriors on laptops and such. I don't have any data on my laptop except for PowerPoint presentations. All my stuff is in the cloud. All of my most important data is actually in the cloud. If it was on a laptop, the laptop should be encrypted. Otherwise, all my cloud data uh, is protected by two-factor authentication. So if I log into Google, then Google, with, you know, I, I provide my username and password, but I, I also get a text message with that one-time password. That's two-factor authentication. So any cloud data, needs to have two-factor authentication. Same thing with Twitter, same thing with Facebook, same thing with banking, which is automatic for banking. So that's one thing. Uh, set up two-factor authentication for any online account that provides you that option, right? And then as far as Wi-Fi goes, hotels, wherever you go, airports and so forth, free public Wi-Fi is unencrypted, it's unprotected. When you hit that I agree button, right, to, to use that free Wi-Fi, if you actually read 
what you are agreeing to, <laughs> you probably would not agree. Because what they're saying is, is that there is absolutely no security. Your data is out there. Everybody can see it that has the right hardware and software. Your data that's flowing in the air is available to all to see. So what you should do is install what's called a VPN, a virtual private network, which basically encrypts and masks all your data uh, as it's going through free Wi-Fi. So just Google VPN. VPN. VPN, virtual private network, and you'll see all kinds of options in the first page of search to do that. And the other thing is password protect your devices. Like if you're not doing that today, there's just, frankly, you're just, you're, you're in denial that these things can't happen to you. Like the convenience of not password protecting your device is is, is completely overwrought by the, the loss in security. Like you are vulnerable, all of your accounts, your online banking, credit cards, all your apps, everything. Our lives are connected via our mobile devices today and you have to password protect your mobile devices. Very good advice. Wonderful, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank we are you. putting our password right now here in our cellular phone. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. The expectations of conference meeting planners and participants has dramatically changed. And even though the planners know what they want, they don't always know how to make it happen. Tom Singer, CSP, gives us some ideas of how you can become an indispensable partner for those planners. We're with Tom Singer, best known as the Conference Catalyst. Conference Catalyst, what is that? So I work with conferences that want to cultivate an attitude for better connections and a culture for better connections in order to create an atmosphere where attendees will have a better experience. You know, people come to conferences to network. All the surveys across industry lines say they come. Yeah, they come for the learning, but they also come to connect with the other people who are going to be there. And when they get there, they stink at it. They spend their time with their coworkers or they're always buried on their phones. So afterwards, they say, yeah, the conference was good. There was some speakers, but I didn't really meet all the people I could have. I changed that. How did you do it? Because in the phone culture, now these days, it gets more difficult to do it, to it break that ice. It is very difficult. And what the mistake most people make is they tell their audiences, oh, put your phones away. My God, if you're under 45 <laughs> years old, you're going to leap out of the building if they tell you to put your phone away for two days. <laughs> so the way I do it is I do it through stories. I do it through getting the audience engaged with me, but also with each other. And I can do this as the opening keynote speaker, in which case I talk about why people matter. Let's take it back to basics. Let's go back to the fact that all opportunities in life come from people. And then I turn it around on them. And I start talking about how can we make this conference the best event that you're going to go to all year. And everybody's invested in that because they've spent time and money to get there. The other option is to be the master of ceremonies. And I take that hour-long keynote and I break it up into three to five-minute chunks throughout the whole three days. So I'm not just a master of ceremonies. I'm a master of ceremonies who is bringing my content. So the objective for you is to help the client begin to develop more of a culture of connection. Absolutely. I mean, that's what meeting planners, when, when they first hear about me, they're like, oh, we've, we've had a networking guru before. We know what that is. And I'm like, mm, you, ha you don't because I invented this. I named it. This is – it's not a keynote. I'm not the MC. This is a program that is designed to get the people who are in your audience much more engaged with each other. And when they're engaged with each other, they talk more. They share more. They have a better experience. They go back. They tell you other friends about it. And they come back the next year and they bring people from their office. 
Give us an example of something that you encourage that audience to do to break the pattern of always connecting with our friends or our coworkers and maybe even escaping from just burying ourselves in the emails on our phones. Sure. Well, a lot of people think, well, the, the networking is reserved for the extroverts. What I tell the audience, first of all, is that introverts are better networkers. And lots of times I get like a, like a cockeyed face from people like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the reality is, is that introverts will ask more questions. They'll listen. And later on, they'll be able to connect those dots where I'm an extrovert. I have to work on this. Extroverts will just keep talking and run on over. And while you're talking, they'll think, what can I say next? Mm-hmm. So I give the power back to the introverts. And the extroverts don't care because they like it when the introverts get more involved. So everybody wins. But what I do is I give them a set of tools of how they can behave in the little mini society that we're creating together. Because a three-day conference or a two-day conference or a week-long conference, it's a mini society. And societies have, I don't want to call them rules, but norms. And when we talk about them, the elephant in the room dissolves. And all of a sudden, people will walk up and say, well, hello, Pilar. Where are you from? I'm from Colombia. (laughs) (laughs) And then we can have a whole discussion because my father-in-law was born in Colombia. So now we could talk about that. And and this starts conversation. And when conversations start and they continue to go, that's how relationships are built. If I meet you and we trade business cards and I send you a LinkedIn request, that's nothing. We're not friends. You know, I tell people and I I joke with the audiences about this that there is a huge difference between somebody who you have built a long-term and mutually beneficial relationship with and someone who you have just met once. Someone you have met once isn't even an acquaintance. There's someone you've met once, and we have to get past that if we want to build long-term relationships. Now, do you ever find your audiences just kind of resisting your efforts to help them get out of that old routine of meeting, break, meeting, lunch with my friends? Yeah, I mean sometimes the sometimes the planners resist up front because in order to make, you know, this work in order to be a catalyst and create change, we have to have long enough breaks. If you're giving people 12 minutes between one speaker to get to the bathroom and to run to their breakouts, there's no time. There there needs to be. So I try to work in advance with the planners to talk about if we're creating a culture where networking is important and you've said you want your people to have those relationships so that they'll come back the next year and they'll have better connectivity, we have to build it into everything. So I work with them if they would like me to in helping to create that. Sometimes, and more specific to your question, there are people in the audience who think, this guy's a clown. And you know what? It's totally okay. To the speakers listening, if you're worried that everybody in your audience is going to like you, you're never going to succeed. I know there's a certain percentage of people who roll their eyes when they say, you know, Tom's going to come here. He's going to help us have a better conference. But when well over 50% of the people, you know, are responding to the fact that this is the best conference I've ever been to. I've met more people. I have people come up to me all the time and say, I have a complaint. And I'm like, all right, here it comes. And they go, I've run out of business cards, and it's only day two. I always bring a quarter-inch stack of business cards, and I never run out. I ran out on day one or day two, and that's because of you because I'm talking to more interesting people. And then, then they laugh about it. And sometimes people make fun of me. They'll go up to a table at lunch, and they'll say, yeah, that, that goofball on stage said I'm supposed to sit with strangers and not my coworkers. And the people at the table will be like, oh, well, join us. We wouldn't want to make Tom mad. <laughs> and then they start talking. And the whole conversation is starts off making fun of me, which is fine. But they end up connecting. And I, then they'll come up to me afterwards going, oh, my gosh, we were mocking you. But it turns out that Steve and I went to the same you know, junior high or something like that. So it's like, oh, so make fun of me all you want. But now you've found something deeper than, you know, hi, how are you? And it's creating a system after all because we are all hired to get results, to solve problems. And then follow up is something that you 
help them to do also once you are gone. So one of the biggest problems I think that happens with people who attend conferences is they're really excited. They get there. And even if they do connect and meet people, they get home with their stack of business cards and they do nothing with them. They don't even send that LinkedIn request to a stranger that I don't recommend. They don't even do that. They, don't even. they get the stack. They put the stack of business cards on the counter. Then the mail comes. It goes on top of it. Then like a couple newspapers, the maid comes, throws everything away. And then like two months later, they're like, oh, that guy, Steve, gosh, and that, that woman, Pilar, God, they were they were so nice when they interviewed me. But I, but was his name Steve or was it Sam? And and. And maybe it was maybe it was Perry. Maybe it wasn't Pilar. Oh, well, they were so nice. And then another week goes by and they go, I was supposed to follow up with, with that guy and the woman who I think she was from Brazil. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden it deteriorates and they never follow up. So what I do at the end of the conference, we talk about what do you do when you get home? So I'm not just there to speak and leave. You know, some speakers, it seems like their greatest skill is they can get to the airport faster after thank you very much <laughs> than any other, you know, person in the country. I stick around for the whole – even if I'm the keynoter, I'm there until the closing keynote. And I'll take the stage for like three minutes and I'll talk about a challenge. Don't follow up with everybody. You met 25 people. My God, you'd be overwhelmed. But everybody in this room, were there three people who made your experience at this conference better? And people will nod. I'm like – Follow up. And, and what if you sent them a note that said, Steve, you were one of the three people who made my time at this NSA conference better than, you know, made the whole ROI worthwhile. How would you feel? And the person in the audience who I asked that to goes, great, because that never happens. And I say, why would you cheat other people out of this experience? And all of a sudden, not everybody does it. I mean, it's a small percentage of people who get home and write handwritten notes and follow up. But the ones who do it, the next year when I'm invited back to the conference to do this again, which happens often, they say, Last year, I took your advice, and I went out and bought stationery, and it turns out sending notes to people I meet is a great tool that's helped me. I got a promotion or whatever. So I give them real advice and real tools that they can use at the conference and forever in their career. Tom, a lot of our listeners and members are probably not interested in becoming masters of ceremonies and yet understand the value of creating better engagement and the connections. So what would you recommend that those listeners do? I talk to a lot of our members who think that's great that you speak and for the price of a keynote, you stay for two days. They're like, I wouldn't want to do that. There's a lot of people who their model is they speak and they go on to the other parts of their business. And that's fine. However, while you're on stage, you have to remember that the style of speaking of being an expert who comes down from the mountain and hands tablets, that style isn't necessarily what people are looking for now, especially the younger generation. They want more engagement with peers. So the, the way you talk to the audience has to be more conversational, more, more I'm one of you, not I am so smart and I have you know this experience that you don't have. And the other thing is there has to be interactivity, not just with you, the speaker, you know, getting people to raise their hands and giving out prizes. That stuff is good. But you have to, even in a keynote, you have to get your audience engaged with each other because if they connect with each other, they're actually going to like you as a speaker better than if they just sit there staring and listening to you. So even though you're not going to go and change your topic to make it about this conference, because my topic's about networking, it works for the conference. That's not going to work for everybody. However, even if your topic is astrophysics, if you can get people engaged with each other and engaged with you and you get them talking during your talk and after your talk, and if you give them a challenge to keep talking about it throughout the conference, they're going to remember you more than if you just give them a lot of facts and figures and pie charts. Unless you are a sales trainer or sales speaker, the very idea of sales is probably uncomfortable. 
Todd Cohen, CSP, is going to explain how every conversation can be a part of your sales strategy without sounding like a salesperson. Todd Cohen, you are contagious, <laughs> exciting, <laughs> enthusiastic. You love... Fun. Yeah, he is. He's a lot of fun. And and it's all about your love of sales, a sales culture. That would be right. And he does something that we all speakers love. We do? Sales. Oh, I think most speakers are scared of the topic. That's why we wanted to talk with you. Welcome. Help our members figure out how to get past that knot in the throat when it comes to sales. One of the things that I think people have to remember is, you know, sales isn't something that you do for part of the day and then you get to go back and do, you know, whatever you do the rest of the day. You know, what what I what I believe passionately is that every single conversation is a selling moment because what's happening is quite literally every time you open up your mouth, you know, in just about between 7 and 10 seconds, people form an opinion. And that's a selling moment. What we kind of forget, I believe, is that, you know, well, certain conversations count and certain conversations are good conversations and that was a wasted conversation and that's where we miss opportunity that's the beginning of the story of where we miss opportunity and our ability to sell selling isn't something that you do just part of the time every conversation is a selling moment so therefore everything is sales what are some of the other things you find speakers struggle with that they probably shouldn't struggle with at all well, you know, it's a, it's a great question. I don't think speakers are really any different than anybody else looking to sell something. And there's a fear factor, right? You know, we're afraid to ask the question. We're afraid to ask for the business because we're afraid we're going to hear that word no. We're going to hear N-O. They're not saying no to you personally. They're saying, I'm just not ready. I don't have enough information. I'm not the right person. You need to talk to somebody else. The other area that, that I think really trips people up is they're afraid to ask because they feel like they feel bad for asking. And, you know, I always say, you know, start selling and stop apologizing because when you apologize, you really what you're doing is you're taking away your credibility from the situation. If you've done everything correctly, you've built the relationship and you've done what you're supposed to do, you've submitted your your proposal, if that's what they've asked for, and all the kind of good things that, that you do in the course of just having conversation, you've earned the right to ask and don't feel bad about it. This is where people really get stuck and they freeze up. They feel like they need to apologize for the sale, for asking for the sale. If you apologize, what you're doing is you're telegraphing to your prospect, I'm not worthy. I don't need this. I don't want this. I don't deserve this. I'm afraid. I'm ashamed to ask. What are the most common apologies that you have heard? I'm not trying to sell you, or I, or I feel bad, or listen, I don't want to push you, or, you know, I, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Just get back to me when you can. Well, that's like saying, don't ever call me back, because that's pretty much what's going to happen. So don't apologize, and don't feel bad for it. And it's still a numbers game, so it's okay to hear a no, and even if it makes me vulnerable, it's okay. Even you, with your, your experience, you feel sometimes like, oh. Absolutely. You know, you bring up a really good point. Being vulnerable in this process is actually something that accelerates the process. You know, when everybody goes into a sales situation and they have their armor on, what happens is nobody can be themselves and really get to know each other. Because at the end of the day, there you go, sales cliche alert, at the end of the day, <laughs> It's really about people being comfortable with each other and getting to know everybody, right? I mean, I, I can say, and I'm sure a lot of other speakers would say, 
a lot of my gigs have come because people have developed a comfort level with me. So I don't feel like at that point I need to apologize or feel bad for asking for the business. And if I hear the word no, again, it's it's okay. I want to know why they need more information. Sometimes it's no, not now, in which case I can say, is it okay to call you six months from now to follow up? Close for something. Get something in their brain that you're going to do at one point in the future. Don't walk away like a puppy dog with a tail between your legs. The door is still open. It just may not be open right then. Most of our <clears throat> listeners are solopreneurs. They own their own business. They might have a virtual assistant, and they've thought about hiring that salesperson. And some have, and it didn't work. Why do you think it doesn't work, and what can we maybe do on our own? Yeah, it's a great question. So, And I have to say uh, that I put myself in that group of somebody who's tried to hire salespeople over the years, and it, it's worked to varying degrees of success. I think the reason it doesn't work, uh, there, there's a few. One, if you're going to put somebody to work selling you, what they're doing is you know, you've got to hire somebody that eats and breathes your fire. They get your mojo. They're right there with you. They are as, as, as energetic and jacked up as you are about what it is that you do. And if you hire somebody and they're virtual and they've never had the chance to see you speak repeatedly and handle objections and work with audiences and watch how you interact, they're never going to be able to sell you as well as you can right? It's the same challenge we have if we say, I want to hire people to deliver my content. Well, they're not really going to ever be quite as good as you because it's your content. I think that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is it really does take a decent amount of time to ramp somebody up to get them to the point where they're comfortable going out and selling you when they're not you. And you've got to be patient with that ramp up period. It does not happen overnight. Even if you hire somebody who comes with years of experience and a, maybe even a book of business. And as we used to say in the old days, a Rolodex. You know, remember those days? You know, a Rolodex. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. But, there, you know, and I still use that term, but we'll, we'll call it a Facebook index. Uh, you know, it, it still takes some time. And usually the solopreneur doesn't have the time. Right? Because right. we need results now. We don't have a staff of people and, for, and lots of people out delivering content for us. Not every speaker has that passive revenue. So we've got to book and book quickly and be out in the field. And you said something earlier, um, building your virtual sales team. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that, that, that's a great point. And because I, because I talk about it all the time, <laughs> so it's a great point. <laughs> what do you I mean? No. Well, what I mean by virtual sales team. Your virtual sales team is every single person who will advocate for you, who thinks of you first and keeps you top of mind. So I can say that of all the gigs that I do in a year, let's say that number is you know 80 or 90 in, in the course of a year, almost every single one of them comes as, as a source from a referral or somebody who has thought of me. That person is effectively selling me because something about what I've done, they've retained. And then when they hear of somebody saying, we're looking for a speaker, we're doing this, we're doing that, they bring my name up. So what they're what they are in effect, is a fully employed, 100% unpaid, <laughs> passionate <laughs> salesperson for you because they get you. So your virtual sales team is every single person you know that will advocate and speak up for you. Your job, our job as a speaker, is to proactively, and that's the, and that's the issue here, is to proactively know who those people are, keep them front and center, 
and stay in touch. And we do that through LinkedIn, through Facebook, through conversations, seeing people at conferences. Your virtual sales team is your sales organization, and it can be literally thousands of people. And how important is to follow up? Because cold calling or proposals, but then you forget about it. And what happened with that paper in that desk? Well, well, that's exactly right. So, you know, there's an old expression, right? Out of sight, out of mind. So if, you, if someone's out of sight too long, you, one day you're going to run into that person and you're going to start talking again and they're going to say to you, you know, I, I heard of a gig and I should have thought of you. And you're going to say, why didn't you? And the, real, and the real issue here is it's not their fault, it's yours. So how do we stay in touch with people? There's so many ways to do it. We have this crazy thing called social media. There's this thing called the internet. Pick up the phone. I always say the secret to sales, really pick up the phone. It's okay. It's actually probably free. Call me or I'm going to call you. We mentioned the word proposal a moment ago. What is uh, your thought about the proposal process and what do we do to make it work for us. Yeah, so the, so proposals are definitely a, a part of the process. So a couple of things I, w- I would suggest. Keep the proposal short. Don't give them any more than two or three options because more than three options, people start to freeze. They get confused. They get confused. When you give people too much information, they go, you know what? I'll look at this later. I'll decide another time. And you may actually lose the gig to somebody who came in with a simple proposal just because it's easy for that prospect to digest and deal with. It may not even be the right gig but they'll go with that person because their proposal is the proxy salesperson for all of us. So we have to make it digestible, easy to understand, and just a limited number of choices, right? With each choice offering slightly more service at a slightly higher price. Now, as far as the proposal goes, I also counsel folks, and I do this as well, don't ever send a proposal too early, schedule a time to send that proposal. So if I might say to a prospect, I'm going to review the proposal with you Tuesday at 4 o'clock, and then at 10 to 4, you hit the send button, so they have 10 minutes to look at it, and then you walk through through the proposal with them on the phone live, so they're reacting to it at the same time you're showing them the proposal. When you send proposals via email, and sometimes we don't have a choice, we have to, Mm -hmm. right? And I get it, RFPs and, you know, requests for speakers, we can't control those things. When we have an opportunity to control it, do so. Because if we send the proposal too early, they're going to look at it, they're going to go right to the price page, you're going to go, ugh, too expensive or not expensive enough. Wouldn't that be nice, right? (laughs) You know, I'm looking to spend more money by, you know, doggone it. And, um, And what can happen is they'll forget about it because we're too busy, we're too overconnected. You get a proposal in the email. You look at it. It goes into the, it goes into the some other pile, right? And you never have a chance to follow up. Follow up with your client real time, no matter where they are. Do it virtually. And we said it: enthusiastic, contagious, energetic. And now a presidential conversation with Ruby Newell Legner. Ruby, as we've been learning from you about the cycles of service and the experience that your clients go through with you, we're kind of curious now, what is what is happening with NSA and the experience for members? Oh, Stephen, I'm so glad you asked that. That's such a great question. And I get it a lot as a president because our goal is to create an experience for each one of our members that really is memorable and we have an opportunity to have educational programs that are just really gonna make a difference in our profession. 
one of the things that we're doing is we're not calling it convention anymore. So this summer in Phoenix, we will be having Influence 2016, the premier event for professional speakers. And the goal is to really focus on having an experience where you can all come and learn how to influence. That means more hands-on workshop style, do it and we give you feedback, or what does it mean? The goal is to have an experience for everyone that has all those different things wrapped into one. We'll have some amazing keynoters, general session speakers who are going to really uh, model as well as identify. We have some wonderful sessions for that are going to be just CPAEs who are going to get up there and, and show us how they do what they do. Um, we've also made another change in that we are going to have our CPAE, which is the Council of Peer, Peers Award of Excellence. That is going to not be on the last night because we always leave and then they don't get to hang with their buddies and we don't get to have them wrapped around us for another day. So that is now going to be on Monday night instead of Tuesday night. Great so mm -hmm, that's wonderful. we're excited about that. As an association, one of the priorities is to keep the content and everything relevant for the members. And we have different types of members. So what are we doing moving to the, the future of NSA? There are so many different uh, areas of expertise in our association. We have people who write and then they speak or they speak and they write. Um, we have consultants, we have facilitators, we have trainers, we have keynote speakers, we have a, a variety of people who are going to learn how to influence each one of those things in a different way. So we promise to have some great breakout sessions. Uh, there might even be an opportunity to develop some mastermind groups around your areas of expertise because you're gonna meet some people that are just like you. Imagine that in a speaking association. <laughs> Thank you, Ruby. If you're listening to this right now on the app, if you've noticed, down at the bottom, the icon for the video has been highlighted, which means this very interview and a little extra bonus with Ruby is available. Don't miss it. Hi, this is Steve Shapiro, your Influence 2016 co-chair. Along with Scott Halford, we are so excited for July 23rd through 26th, JW Marriott Desert Ridge in Phoenix, Arizona, it is going to be hot outside and it's going to be even hotter inside. We have an incredible lineup of speakers for you. Saturday night, we are going to have an entertainment extravaganza. It's going to include a world-famous magician, a comedian, and our very own Jason Hewlett. Sunday, we go deep into the content. We're going to be talking about marketing how to leverage books, and how to be an entrepreneur more successfully, we will then have a deep dive set of sessions where you will spend three hours with masters of this content and more. And of course, we'll have our usual breakouts. On Monday, I'm really excited about this, we are going to have a panel discussion around the consumption and dissemination of content. We're going to have the editor-in-chief of a major magazine. We're going to have someone from the broadcast television world, a major TV producer, and someone from Google. This panel is going to be moderated by our very own Kate Delaney. It's going to be an incredible morning where you're going to learn the best ways to leverage your content. The afternoon, we'll have some more breakouts. And then on Monday evening, 
We've moved things around a little bit. We are going to have the CPAE banquet on Monday evening. This means that more people will have a chance to attend because a lot of people would leave before Tuesday evening. It's going to be an incredible evening. It's going to be sophisticated. It's going to be classy. And then on Tuesday, for me, maybe the highlight of the entire time, we are going to celebrate CPAE greats. We are going to have 10 CPAEs on the stage, five giving their best five-minute openings and five giving their best 15 minutes of content. We will close the main stage with Darren Hardy, the former publisher of Success Magazine. Many of you know Darren. He's amazing. But it doesn't end there. One of the things we've heard is that when you leave Influence, you have so much information, but you don't have the ability to implement. So we're going to put you into mastermind groups, which is going to give you a chance to start working on the content now and get a head start. And then Tuesday evening, we close things off with a bang with a major party, with a live band. It is going to be a great way to close things out. So Scott and I look forward to seeing you at Influence 2016, July 23rd through 26th at the JW Marriott Desert Ridge. Welcome to another episode of Two Sides of the Same Coin, where we take one topic and hear how two different speakers feel about that issue. This month, the topic is, what should the collateral material of a professional speaker look like, and are one sheets even necessary anymore? This time, I'm actually gonna take side A of this topic. I believe, that what we used to call collateral material can be replaced with an effective website. Our digital representation should be professionally designed, include a strong brand image, and accurately represent the speaker. If you speak in front of crowds of no more than 100 people on a regular basis, then your promotional material should not include a photo of you at the MGM Grand in front of 20,000 screaming fans. Many speakers and coaches have debated the relevance of the one sheet in today's marketplace. I haven't used a one-sheet in over 10 years, but there is a printer-friendly version of my offerings on my website for those committees that like to print and share. I do spend a lot of money on other types of collateral material in order to make an impression and differentiate myself from other speakers. That means I still spend money on print, just not the traditional one-sheet. Now, to share the other side of the coin is Myrtle Gunderson, a 30-year veteran of NSA from Kickapoo Valley. Welcome, Myrtle. Whew, I have to thank you so very much for that kind introduction, Lori. But this idea of not having a one-sheet makes about as much sense as government cheese. You got to have the one-sheet. For crying out loud, you need an entire press packet. You guys get yourself by the dollar store and pick up a handful of school folders. Them folders are beautiful. They come in an assortment of patterns and color just for cute, don't you know? But I stick with the navy blue. I call it bank and blue because we all know that powerful companies use navy blue. So I do that too. That's why they call me Power Mert. You guys want a testimonial sheet? My testimonial from Clara Overbo, secretary at Viborg's funeral home, says Myrtle is a hoot. Myron Nordley from the Druthers Dairy says, Myrtle sure can talk, and I love her tater talk casserole. 
Get a meeting planner to say something nice, but otherwise just make something up. No one will know the difference. I give out a business card and a free copy of my cassette tape so they can listen to it in their Walkman every day. But get yourself a VHS demo videotape. Now, if you've been beat with the ugly stick, then get yourself a good cameraman. If I had my druthers, my brother Aylor would not have been the cameraman, but he was the only one with the Kodak. Finally, go ahead and spruce up your press packet with pictures of famous people. When I went to Madame Trousseau's in Las Vegas, I took lots of pictures with the famous wax celebrities and made a collage page for my press packet. Folks love it. Oh, and once I did a little interview on our local NBC affiliate in Kickapoo Valley, and ever since then, I make sure that the NBC Peacock logo is on all my stuff. Now that's leveraging opportunities, don't you know? Well, there you have it. Two sides of the same coin, honoring our humor edition of the year. A special thank you to Amy D. from Mitchell, South Dakota, for agreeing to be the funny one today. We will see you back here next month, where I promise we will be serious again, debating some topic I have yet to choose. This is Voices of Experience announcer Sam Newton. It's time to wrap up this edition with VOWE. Now your hosts, Stephen Iverson, CSP, and Pilar Ortiz. Times we see in a restaurant a family of let's say five with each person with a phone, just like we are doing here. Are you sending a text, Stephen, or are you checking your Facebook? Maybe do you want to talk to me? Are you are you talking to me? Yes, I'm trying to talk to you. Oh, well, I, I was just trying to send to you a text. Hi, I'm trying to have a conversation with you. You know, conversations really are very important and much more meaningful than just using the smartphones and social media. Especially when we're attending NSA events. The conversations are not just from the stage or in the workshops and breakout sessions, right? Right. You know, someone just last night in a conversation asked both of us a very thought-provoking question. They asked, what are the most important words spoken at an NSA event. And the answer was? <laughs> well, we, we didn't have the right answer, did we? He, he said that the most important words spoken were in the halls, in the lounge, face-to-face, -face, between peers. Yes, the discussion over coffee, that question, that moment when you see a VIP, a first-time attendee, and you say hello. It's about asking those questions, but more important, it's about listening, because that is where the conversation really happens. That's true. You know, we're so in the habit of asking, what do you speak about? And then all of a sudden we shift into this little competition of sharing our niches and our angles to all the business. The me, me, me. As a matter of fact, I heard you asking that question in a different way. I, I, I was tired of asking, though, what do you speak about? And I thought, there's got to be a different way of doing it. So I've started to ask people 
how to use, use speaking in your business. And it, it leads us into a very different kind of conversation. It's kind of fun. But, you know, if we're not careful, we will forget to listen to the things that are really significant about how we deliver our, our outcomes and how we contribute, not just to our clients, but to our fellowship here within NSA. And that is exactly what we would like to invite you to do. Join the conversation. Send us those questions, comment on Facebook or other social media, because we want to hear from you. That has been a great opportunity when we have been able to meet face-to-face -face with our listeners and they say that interview or that content was exactly what I needed. That's true. And that is what it is about. And even though we were making fun of using the social media and smartphones, because of our industry, we're not always in the same place at the same time. So use the tools. But make sure to listen to the responses and be prepared to add value in the exchange. Don't forget to look up once in a while. Even though we are connecting with someone, some place around the world, just look around because the best conversations are waiting to happen right where we are. Hey, well, excuse me, Pilar, I, I have to send a text. So um, let, just give me a minute, okay? <laughs> Steven. We're also extending the value of VOE by continuing the conversation. It's very easy. Go to the National Speakers Association Facebook page. Post your questions and comments. Make sure you tag Pilar or me, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. And also remember to download the VOE app so you can enjoy this valuable information on your own time anywhere at any moment. Talk to you next month. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.